All right. Well, good morning. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at North Park. You guys uh, excited about Christmas? All right. Got a few. You guys enjoying the spring weather? Winter's over. It's nice, huh? All right. Well, whether you're a first time uh, guest here at North Park or you've been a long time attender, uh, we're glad that you're here. Excited to open up God's word uh, with you uh, this morning. Uh, Last week, we wrapped up a series on uh, Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And today we're going to begin our Christmas series, which is where the New Testament opens up. And if you have a a Bible, if you open it up um, in between Malachi and Matthew, there's just a, a blank page. It just says New Testament. So I called to see if I get my money back. Cause, no, but that blank page represents something that we call the uh, intertestamental period. So it's what happened between the testaments or 400 years of silence. And so that's my assignment today is to talk to you about those 400 years of silence. But first, let's talk about silence. There's different kinds of silence. There's a silence that when someone else is falsely accused of something that you did and you just remain silent and I need to make something right. The last time I spoke, I uh, accused Dylan Descrange of leading a group of guys to my house to toilet paper to TPA. And right after that, we had a student leaders meeting and I found out he didn't do it. But it's not really that big a deal. But here's a picture of the culprits. And we do mean, we do mean dead or alive. And Phil will give you a million dollars. We can capture them. So it was actually them and some middle school girls who did that. And they just remained silent through that whole service, talking to each other. But afterwards, the ladies confessed. There's another kind of silence, which is awkward silence. So right now, We're just going to pause and be silent for about 30 seconds. Look at that. That's only like 10 or 15 seconds, and everybody's already a little awkward about that, right? There's awkward silence. Uh, Several suggested that we just have 35 minutes of silence to talk about this. All right, there's another kind of silence. I call it conversational silence. Maybe you know a friend or a a family member like this. One day, one time I didn't talk to my sister for three days. I just didn't want to interrupt her. (laughs) And sometimes I'm accused of that. Some people say I talk a lot. So there's conversational silence. But there's also relational silence where uh, you have a relationship with somebody who's important and something happens. When I was in college... I had a a girlfriend who ended up uh, going out with my best friend, and that hurt a lot. And so for a whole semester, we're at a college of uh, only about 300 students. Everybody knows everybody. And I was so hurt and became so bitter about that. I didn't talk to her for that whole semester. And then God got hold of me of how wrong that was, and eventually I corrected that. But sometimes we have a relational silence. A relationship is broken, and either they won't talk to us or we won't talk uh, to them. There's also this silence where when you have a relationship with somebody who's important and they give you guidance and you're used to getting help from them and you enjoy that relationship and maybe you've communicated something and for some reason you, they're not responding and you just eagerly want to hear from them. I was watching a, a show um, set in 1939 and uh, back then you couldn't just send messages, you had to send a letter. 
and the son is in Africa and the ranch that they have is being uh, attacked. There's people who are trying to take it from them. And there's only this one son that's left that maybe could help. And so they send a letter and it was over four months before they heard back as they just waited in that relational silence. When will we get an answer back for us today? It might be like a phone call. We're waiting for a phone call. And so during this period, it's not four months that God's people don't hear from God. It's four centuries. And you might ask, well, is that unique that God would go silent like that? Well, if we look in uh, Psalm 19 and you don't have to turn there, but uh, God was a communicating God. He communicated with his people from the very beginning. And in Psalm 19, it says the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship day after day. They continue to speak night after night. They make him known. He says the skies. And when we look at some of the pictures that we have, the Milky Way, it's just incredible how large and how huge and how impressive the skies are. And now with some of the newer telescopes we have, all of these represent galaxies, except for some of those starbursts as we're developing technology to see farther and farther out into space. Psalm 19 says that speaks about God, that there is a being who created us and created all this and who is powerful enough to do that. We continue in Psalm 19. It says they, the skies, speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has been communicating from the very beginning. And from the beginning, he, create, he communicated generally through his world, generally through his world, through his creation. But he also has communicated specifically through his words or through his word. We go a little farther down in Psalm 19 in verse 7. It says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. And then one more verse. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. So generally, God communicated through his world, his creation. But specifically, he communicates through his word. And he did that in various ways in the Old Testament and then through the prophets. If we look at Hebrews chapter 1. That book begins, it says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So the prophets were people who represented God to the people and God gave them a message, his word, his commandments, his decrees. And they communicated that to the people. So for God not to speak to his people for 400 years is certainly unique. But we have to be careful not to get confused because God's silence does not equal his absence. In this 400 years, just because God wasn't speaking, it didn't mean that he wasn't present, and it didn't mean that he wasn't active in doing something. So what was God up to during these 400 years that separate the time of Nehemiah to the time of Christ? What happens in that blank page between the Testaments? What should we know as we seek to read the New Testament so it makes sense? Why is Rome now in power? Why is Greek such a prominent language? What is the synagogue? Who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and why don't they like Jesus? And what Bible is Jesus quoting from? I hope to answer a few of these questions for us this morning. 
Because the events, the literature, and the social forces of these years shape the world of the New Testament. And knowing some of this background can help us from feeling like we've missed an episode of a show. Now, those of us that are older remember when you always had to wait a week for the next episode. And now you can stream a lot of those or wait till the whole season's done. But there are some now who are going back to letting uh, or putting out an episode week by week. But remember when you're trying to watch a show and then you have a meeting or you have to go to something or you miss an episode. When you watch the next episode, you're like, wait, who, who is that? And why are they together? And where are they right now? And that's how we can feel when we read our Bibles, when we end the Old Testament in Malachi as we did. And then you open it up to the Gospels. It can kind of seem like, who are these people and why are things the way they are? And so we want to look at some of those things so that we can, most importantly, understand the Bible, understand the Gospels and what the New Testament is about, because it is a word from God to us with a very important message. Right. So there's three areas that I want to cover with you. Uh, The first is historical, cultural and then religious. And all these settings make a huge impact in our understanding of the New Testament. So let's start first with the historical setting at the close of the Old Testament, Persia is the world power, which is now Iran, but they're the ones in control. And you might remember that uh, under Persian rule, Cyrus and then Artaxerxes let Israel go back to rebuild the temple. And that's basically the time of Nehemiah. And so for those 400 years between the Testaments, we don't have biblical history, but what we do have is prophetic history. And so I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. And just remind you that the Bible is a library of books. And so if you need help in finding Daniel, you can look in your table of contents or just turn in your device. But we have these major prophets, just meaning that they're longer. And so we're looking at Daniel, which is right there between Ezekiel and Hosea. And we're going to be in chapter 7. Now, as we turn there, a little background, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel comes to the king who has had this dream about a statue. He tells him what the dream is and he interprets it for him. And he tells him that uh, the dream had a statue in which there was a gold head, silver shoulders, bronze, uh, kind of the midsection and iron legs, and then a mixture of iron and clay. Okay. Daniel has a similar dream in chapter seven. And we're going to look that he had some corresponding creatures that matched up with his statue. And then we'll tell you what each of those represents. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. Daniel says, Earlier during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and he saw visions as he lay in his bed. And in my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm turning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground, like a human being, and it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying, Get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard, and it had four bird's wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. And then verse 7, then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled the remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, all of that, you read that and you just go, what? What is all these strange creatures and things like that? So prophetic uh, material had 
images that represented different things. And if we would take the time to study the book of Daniel, if we go back to that statue, we would see that the lion is the same as the gold and the bear, the same as the silver and the leopard and bronze, the same and the beast and the iron, the same. And what they represented was the different empires. And so we know uh, that the first one was uh, Babylon. And then we had Medo-Persia, which we just talked about. That's the end of the Old Testament. And then you're going to have Greece who comes to power and then Rome. And so Greece and Rome are what we're looking at as we look at that in-between time that kind of sets the historical setting for the New Testament. Now, as we think about that, I just want to let you know that uh, about two and a half years ago, Phil uh, did a sermon and it's from the uh, Prepare the Way series. And he went in depth about the historical uh, setting. So I'm not going to do that much. And if you want to go back and check that out, you can get more of the details. But what's important for us is that uh, a character, Alexander the Great, became king in 336 B.C. And he conquered the whole world. And as he did that, in order to control the lands, he imposed his culture upon the conquered countries. And this process was called Hellenism. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit when we look at the cultural setting. And it consisted mainly of language and holidays and customs and the worship of Greek gods. But then Alexander died at a very young age, 33, and he didn't have a successor. And so his generals, the empire was divided among the four generals. And there's two of them that impact the New Testament setting. Uh, There's a guy named Ptolemy and then Seleucus. And what's important about that is Ptolemy's empire was south or south, which is north, north and south, south down here. It was south of Israel and uh, Seleucus was North and Israel was in between. So as these two guys fought their empire, Israel was in the middle a lot of the times. All right. So in that statue, the leopard represents Greece and it represents Alexander the Great. Now, the next country was our empire was the Roman Empire, which was the iron or the beast. And after defeating several of his enemies, a guy named Pompey conquered that area and took control of Israel. And Rome, as they took over and their empire, they had a very peaceful time. It's called Pax Romana. And so they ruled. And in order to rule and keep things peaceful, they had some internal struggles. But they also ruled in such a way that there were no wars and there was no fighting as they rolled over. And they uh, ruled over the empire and they had a lot of different advancements. And one of the advancements was the construction of, maybe you heard of the Roman roads. There was an incredible road system, over 250,000 miles of roads that they put in so that they could travel through their empire. And 50,000 of those were actually paved with pavers. And if you go over there today, you can see some of those. And although the, there was few roads in Israel, later when the Apostle Paul begins to travel with the gospel, it enabled him to get from place to place as the gospel spread. So in Israel, Rome decided they would set up these vassals or kings to rule. And the first one will recognize this name. Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible is Herod the Great. Now, Herod was not great because he was a great ruler. He was great because of his architectural achievements. He rebuilt, rebuilt the, uh, the temple and added onto it in his palace. Herod the Great, though, was not a good guy. And he persecuted uh, the Jews. Very cruel. He killed two of his wives and three of his sons, and he had received a a senatorial decree that they would have to call him, listen to this, king of the Jews. And that's why when 
someone comes on the scene and this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. They say he is the king of the Jews. That's why Herod the Great was so threatened because he had that title that he was the king of the Jews. And so life in Israel was difficult for the Jewish people, but there was peace. There wasn't any war. And so as we look at the historical setting of these 400 years, we're aware that God's silence does not equal his absence. And the rising and the fall of these different empires is not a surprise to any of us who know the Bible. We've heard parts of this verse in the Advent prayer. And we've read these verses together before we started our sermon. But let's look at Acts chapter 17 again. From one man, he, God, created all the nations through the whole earth. God created nations. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. And he determined their boundaries. That's how a book of Daniel can predict what empires will come next. Because God created the nations. He's the one who determines when a nation rises and when it falls and what their boundaries will be. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Paul says, though he is not far from any of us. So he says the reason God does this with different nations is always because he hopes that those nations will find him and see him and turn to him. There's a sociologist named Grace Davin. She cites a survey that asked Britons whether they believed in God. And most respondents said they did. The next question was, do you believe in a God who can change the course of events? A popular response was, no, just an ordinary one. They believed in a God, but not a God who could control everything like that. But the God of the Bible isn't ordinary in any sense of the word. The fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies point us to the reality that God is sovereign as the creator, sustainer, and maker of all things. And hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years ago come true with 100% accuracy. God is not dominating, but he's absolutely dominant. He's not controlling, but he is in ultimate control. God doesn't need to take charge. He's always in charge. And he can do anything he wants. He doesn't need permission. He doesn't need help. And he doesn't need our advice. He's greater than and independent from his creation, which is dependent upon him. He's greater than time. He's eternal. He's greater than place. He's fully present everywhere. And he's greater than circumstance because he is unchangeable. And this should be an encouragement to us. If God is in control of all of human history and he can control the nations, then we know that he can be in control of our lives. And he's someone to be worshipped, not avoided. Mercy Me has a song out right now that says, I'm losing sight of all that matters, blinded by the questions that I can't answer. I'm paralyzed by what I don't know. And that holds me hostage and won't let go. So breathe out and breathe in. I raise my hands. And remember, God, you're the one who makes the mountains move. Stars will not shine Unless you tell them to. You conquered the grave to make all things new. So who am I? Who am I to not worship you? Holy, holy, you are God Almighty who was and is and will always be. Holy, holy, you are God Almighty. You're my song. You're my hope. You're my strength. Let everything that breathes sings or sing. You're the one who makes the mountains move. Stars will not shine unless you tell them to. 
You conquered the grave to make all things new. So who am I? Who am I not to worship you? And God knows and he sees and he cares about what's going on in your life right now. Just to understand that this is something I've learned too, and I know that many of you have. Back in 2017, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. 2018, we went through uh, chemo, and we went through surgery and radiation, and the cancer was gone. And then 2019, it came back. And 2020, in January, she passed away. And I had to ask, where is God in this? Who is it that I rest on during this time? Three years, I was very satisfied to be by myself and to invest in my kids and my church. And then uh, October of that year, I began to think, man, I think maybe I should look for somebody. Maybe that would be interested in having me for the rest of their life. (laughs) So I signed up for eHarmony. Did my research, and that was the best one for long-term relationships. Sixty percent of the people on there end up getting married. And so I dated a lady for a few months uh, through the end of that year. And uh, she was a great Christian lady, but it just wasn't a good match. And so I was frustrated. And so I literally said out loud to God, you're going to have to do this because I've got a really small box. Somebody who's willing to put up with me. Somebody who will fit with my kids. Very important. Somebody who wants to be a pastor's wife and somebody who wants to be a pastor's wife at North Park. And so I said, God, you'll have to do that. You'll have to bring her to me. You have to turn her heart towards me and my heart towards her. The next day we went out to lunch uh, with I went out to lunch with Phil and we were uh, I was letting him know he knew that I had gone out with the one lady. And I said, well, it's back to you, Harmony, unless you know somebody almost kind of offhandedly. And Phil said, I think I do. And so eventually I got in contact with Brenda and Brenda and I began to date. We got engaged and she fit my little box that only God would know who that person was that could fit that box. We talked about getting a second chance as we got married in July. And then we went on our honeymoon. It was a short honeymoon plan because Phil was on sabbatical Phil was kind enough to do our wedding in the middle of his sabbatical. And then we were going to go on just a four-day honeymoon in Gatlinburg and then come back. We'd be here for Sunday. The following week, I would preach. Sabbatical would be over. And then we were going to take a longer honeymoon in the fall. So we finished uh, uh, our honeymoon up. This is the last day. Our flight's not leaving until 530 in Knoxville. So we say, well, let's go into Gatlinburg and do something fun. And we did. We went to this uh, uh, sky bridge. It's the longest uh, bridge a suspension bridge that you can walk across. It's only 200 yards, though. Uh, we had a blast there. Um, and then I had a heart attack. And one of the things that Brenda and I had talked about was the fear. Brenda's husband had also passed away from cancer uh, seven years ago, but it had been 10 years, the journey of a cancer that was incurable. And so it had been 10 years. And so we had talked about uh, the fear of that, giving your life to somebody again and something could happen. And so on our honeymoon, on that last day, I have a heart attack. A lot of details to that, but what I'd let you know is from the time that I was in the ambulance to the time they aeromedded me into surgery, to the hospital and into surgery, was less than an hour. God took care of me and got me there quickly, so there was no damage to my heart. 
the only time I remember praying is in the helicopter. And I pray, God, spare my life so that Brenda doesn't have to go through that again and that my kids don't have to go through it. And God was kind enough to do that. And so I had one artery 100% blocked. They put in a stent. And so for me, it was a really short ordeal. The helicopter ride and getting there and going into surgery, I wake up and they say, here's what happened. Here's a, there's a stent in your, heart, your artery now, and you should be okay. For Brenda, it was a very long ordeal. Uh, first trying to find our car, a rental car. First going to go to one hospital, then I'm being aeromedded, but she doesn't know why. She gets to the hospital and asks uh, where I am, and they, don't, they say they don't have a John Nixon in the hospital. So she's not sure if something really bad happened or she's at the wrong place. They eventually find me. They tell her about it. She has to wait to talk to somebody. Eventually they come out and tell her what happened. Then she had to wait again. So about four and a half hours for her of not knowing what was going on and that maybe the guy that she just married four or five days ago might be gone. So not only did we get a second chance, God was kind enough to give us a second, second chance. And so every day I live with the knowledge that God is sovereign. And I tell that just to say I've been on both sides of it. Sovereign doesn't mean that God will always give us what we want. I wanted my first wife to live. And God chose to take her home. It doesn't mean that God wasn't good or that he doesn't care. That he didn't hear my prayers. And then he was kind enough to give me a second, second chance. Because that first, second chance almost went away. And so almost every day I tell Brenda, I'm so glad to be here. And you could look at your life and say the same thing. And some of you would give testimony of the same thing. That God's sovereignty, where he controls the nations as he did in these, these 400 years. He controls our lives as well. And so whether it turns out that our spouse passes away or whether he gives us another spouse or whether you survive a heart attack, God is good and he loves us. And so this historical setting, I see a real encouragement that there's a sovereign God who loves us and cares about us. And so today, if you're going through something, I just encourage you to open up your hands and give that to God. Rest in his sovereignty. And trade in your fear and your worry and your anxiety. Because God is in control. He controls the nations. So he knows you. He sees you. He cares about you. And he does hear your prayers. Keep trusting in him. And don't give up. Secondly, let's look at the cultural setting. The cultural setting. We mentioned that word Hellenism. Hellenism was that Greek culture. Uh, Alexander the Great decided the best way to control the empire is have everybody speak the same language, dress the same way, worship the same gods. And so that was his idea. And that helped as the Romans came in as well. But Alexander spread that Hellenism. And one of the things that happened is most people began to speak Greek, including Hebrews, the Jewish people. And so a significant thing that happened is the Bible was translated. That Old Testament that they had was translated into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. So that would have been the Bible that Jesus read and the Bible that the apostles used. And so sometimes when you hear Jesus quote a scripture from the Old Testament, when you look at it, you go, oh, that's a little bit different. It's just like our translations, how they're a little bit different. Because what they did is they took the Hebrew scriptures and translated it into Greek. And this Greek influence spread across the entire spectrum of human society from surface areas like clothes and language to deep areas like religion and philosophy. And what happened is you have different people in Israel who are trying to hold on to that past identity. 
and the way that they were supposed to worship God. And you have others saying, no, this, the, what's going on with the Greek culture, some of that is good and it's helpful. And they begin to speak Greek language. So what happens is they're divided. You have the Jewish people who are divided because in Alexandria and uh, down in Egypt, which is why Jesus runs and his family run to Egypt, it would make sense. You have probably one million Jewish people now who are outside of Israel and they're living in the city of Alexandria. And so some of these Jews accept it and some don't. They're very divided. And you see that early on in the church in Acts chapter 6. You see that, but as believers rapidly multiplied, people are coming to know Christ. They were rumblings of discontent because the Greek speaking believers complained about the Hebrew speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So you have the Jewish people who are divided. Some of them have accepted that and they're speaking Greek. And you have others who are trying to hold on to the old culture and only speaking Hebrew. And in the church now, they're all together. And here what's happening is one group is complaining like, hey, how come you're taking care of their widows, but not their widows? And we know that that's solved as God institutes deacons who serve the body of Christ to make sure that everybody has their needs met. So the context of the New Testament, when you open it up, is multicultural. You have that Roman culture, you have the Greek culture, and the Hebrew culture. In the Old Testament, it was come and see. You want to know what God is like? Come see the nation of Israel. And every part of their life was built around who God is and how they were to worship Him then. In the New Testament, what you have is a go and tell. Now this message as Jesus comes can go to any culture. It can adapt to the culture and wherever you are, it's a go and tell. And so this impacts our evangelism as we are to take the gospel to many different cultures, but it also impacts the body of Christ. And so you'll see things like this in Colossians chapter three in this new life. What new life? The new life that is in the church, something that you didn't know in the Old Testament, Paul says, but it's been revealed in the New Testament. This idea that Jew and Gentile can come together. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or circumcised, um, barbaric, uncivilized, or some of you say Scythian there, slave or free. It doesn't matter your background. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. So if you would have uh, stuck your head in the door of a church there in Colossae or in uh, Ephesus, you would look to that group of people and like, They have nothing in common. Why are they here? Well, it's in this new life, in this walk with Christ. Now they're a part of the body of Christ. So it didn't matter whether they were Jew or Gentile. Circumcised and uncircumcised would have been some Jews continuing to follow that. Barbarian. uh, Barbarian came from the barbar. It was like people who didn't know this Greek language and they were uneducated. So it didn't matter if you were that or Scythian. That was the people in the north and they were very uncultured. Whether you're a slave or free or um, uh, Galatians tells us it didn't matter whether you're male or female, because that was a big deal in that culture. So what did they have in common? It was Christ that mattered because he lived in all of us. When you look here at North Park, we could easily look and see, boy, I don't have a lot in common with a lot of these people. We've got some blue collar workers and white collar workers. We've got some who came out of Christian reform background, some who have no church background at all, some who are white, some who are black or brown. Some who uh, may have a a Korean background or maybe a Dutch background. Some who are urban professionals. Some who are hipsters. Some are Democrats and some Republicans. Some like sports and some don't. Some come from the grew up in the suburbs and some in the inner inner city or maybe a rural area. Some of you are college grads or maybe even have a master's degrees, and some may even be a high school dropout. Some are wealthy. 
Some of you are financially insecure. But so what do we have in common? We could list many more differences. What we have in common is that Christ is all that matters. And as a believer, he lives in all of us. And it's this kind of culture that the church is in when Jesus comes. And the, the culture of the church is one of Jesus and love for one another. That's our culture. And we see that as we look at that cultural setting that Jesus came into. One last one is a religious setting. What was going on with religion? Well, we have Judaism. By time the New Testament, uh, the time of the New Testament, the Jewish faith was very different than 400 years before. During the time of the prophets. Under the exile and defeat of the Jewish nation, they took many Jews out of their homeland. Remember James chapter 1 talks about, I'm writing to those Jews who are scattered among the nations. There's probably more people living outside of Israel than inside of Israel. The temple had been destroyed, so they were unable to practice the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Without the temple to worship God, they had to find new ways to worship and keep their identity as a people. And so two major developments happened that actually have impacted us. The first was the synagogue, and the synagogue became a place to worship. So instead of the temple where you offered sacrifices, you came to the synagogue where you learned And that's the second thing. Learning and studying the Torah became the highest calling for a Jew. You might recognize a similar practice for us. Uh, Caleb mentioned what's most important to us is God's word, the Bible. And so those who read it and study it and teach it become honored. And we meet together to hear the word of God and to learn it. That's what they were doing with what they had. And so two leadership groups become prominent in the New Testament. The first is the Pharisees. And then the Sadducees and the Pharisees were separatists and they started off noble. They were like, let's hold on to that heritage that we have. Let's not lose that. And so they became separatists and they accepted the whole Old Testament. But they also added oral tradition to try to make sure they didn't break it, which led them into legalism. Most of them were fairly rich and they didn't practice temple focused religion, but instead decided let's focus on the home and make the home the center of where we worship. They believed in angels and life after death. And they looked at the Roman government as acceptable as long as it didn't try to limit what they wanted to do as far as their Jewish practices. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, mostly upper class priests, they held a significant amount of political power. So this is where you see the Sanhedrin. And they still focused on the temple and the priesthood. Um, they had a very narrow acceptance of Scripture, though. They rejected the moral law of the Pharisees the prophets, and the historical or poetic writings. So the only books that they focused on were the first five books of Moses. They had a wide view of politics, and they were mostly accepting and even supportive of Roman rule. They did not believe in an active role of the Holy Spirit, and they did not believe in angels or resurrection. So they leaned very much towards not focusing on the spiritual side of things. So they affirmed the temple practices, but held a distant view of God and believed he was disinterested and human affairs. So we can summarize that in this chart here. The Pharisees mainly had a problem with Jesus because they were legalists. And Jesus confronted that straight on often. The Sadducees, on the other hand, you see more of their conflict with the early church because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And the foundation of the church as it began was Jesus is God. He died and he rose from the dead. And so they have conflict with them. We could say that the Pharisees are ritualists, the Sadducees are rationalists. The Pharisees are legalistic, and the Sadducees are liberals. The Pharisees are separatists, 
And the Sadducees are compromisers because they're interested in political power. So this is the religious background. So I just remind you that as Jesus enters this world, God's silence does not equal his absence. His silence does not equal his absence. Understanding this historical and religious context in these four centuries fills in that blank page for us. When you open up the New Testament, as we begin to focus on Jesus and he entered the world, this is the world in which he entered. And so when we understand this historical and cultural and religious context, it fills in that blank. It helps us get caught up on our episodes. The episode that we missed between Malachi and the Gospels, this fills it in for us. God has not been silent, even though, or God has been silent, but he has not been Absence. And so I remind you that in Malachi, one of the last verses says, Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And we've looked at the last couple of weeks. The day of the Lord encompasses both of his comings, his birth and his second coming when he comes to ultimately judge. That's the day of the Lord. And so Malachi says that's coming. And so Malachi ends his message from the Lord and then silence for 400 years. And it's like waiting for that phone call. Excuse me, one minute. Hey, baby. I'm busy right now. I'm doing something. Right? That's what they felt like. 400 years of silence. They're wondering, is God going to call? Where did he go? Why haven't we heard from him? Are all those promises of the Old Testament still true? And then we get to the Gospels and we open up the New Testament and the phone call comes through. And so God breaks the silence. First, he does it in Luke 1. He talks to Zechariah, who's in the temple, who is still believing that the Messiah is coming. And God talks to him. That's John the Baptist's father. He speaks to Mary, the young teenage girl who now is pregnant, even though she's not been with anybody. And she's pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And he talks to Joseph to say, hey, This is of God. I'm doing this. You stay with your wife. And then he breaks through in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. As the angels talk to the shepherds, it says, But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. The silence is broken. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, we looked at how God communicated through the prophets, but there's more there in Hebrews chapter 1. He said, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, but also now in these final days, He has spoken to us how? Through His Son. And He announces, My Son is here and most recently and most clearly god communicates to us through his son after four years of silence 400 years of of silence at just the right time historically and culturally and religiously god speaks again and that's our series for the next three weeks at just the right time jesus is born at just the right time jesus dies and at just the right time jesus is coming back Again, I want to close with an illustration about how God has come. It's called The Kiss. And in his book, The Mortal Lessons, a physician, Richard Seltzer, describes a scene in a hospital room 
where he had performed surgery on a young woman's face. He says, I stand by the bed where the young woman lies. Her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be that way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together, they seem to be in a world all their own in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at the touch of each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. And she nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. He says, I like it. He says, it's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the divine. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that the kiss still works. God accommodated himself to us by coming down from heaven as a little baby. He came to us and then he allowed his body to be twisted on the cross to show us that the love of God still works. Regardless of the scars that you bear from the ravages of sin, you are loved by God. You're beautiful to him. You were created in his image and you bear the likeness of his son. He will never stop loving you. So we rest in his sovereignty. We know that he puts us into the body of Christ where Christ is all that matters. And then we remember that at just the right time, he demonstrated his love to us by accommodating us, by sending Jesus to live in human flesh and then to give his life as a sacrifice for us. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, All you have to do is simply surrender your life to him and say, I believe that Jesus is God, that he died for me, that he rose again. And I give my life to him. And for those of us that know Christ, to pray this Christmas season will be a time to remember and to celebrate that God has spoken. Let's pray. God, we're so humbled that you would love us enough to accommodate us and to send your son And yet you did it willingly, generously, and in a way that we could never doubt your love. God, we pray that you would cement these truths in our heart. May this week we live with your presence very real. Help us as a church that we would reflect your love and your character. And I just pray that you'll help us in this Christmas season, that our hearts would be encouraged and joyful, and that you would accept our worship. Because who are we not to worship you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.